Hi, everyone. Welcome to Portraits of Liberty. In this episode, in honor of Black History Month, I would like to chat about James Fortin, a black revolutionary soldier, a business tycoon, and an abolitionist who spent his life fighting for a freer and better future. James Fortin was born on the 2nd of September in 1766. His family were residents of long-standing in Pennsylvania, and he could trace his familial line back to the days of William Penn. Unlike many black Americans, Fortin's father, Thomas, was a free man. When asked how he attained his freedom, Thomas stated his grandfather had somehow obtained his own freedom, but didn't exactly elaborate further. We lack evidence about the status of James's mother, Margaret, who might have been enslaved or working as an indentured servant at some point. The majority of black Americans did not share the free status of the Fortin family. They had been brought to America as slaves. Completely disenfranchised of rights and political status, these enslaved people were at the mercy of their white masters. A stray receipt uncovered from archives showed that James's father, Thomas, knew how to read and write, a significant achievement for a man who was the son of an enslaved person. Being converted to Anglicanism, Thomas Fortin likely learned to read at a local Philadelphian church. Fortin's father went by the last name Fortune, but would eventually change his name to Fortin. Fortune was a common slave name, but one that had become inseparable from black deserters in the British army and conspiracies against slavery. Thus, the Fortunes became the Fortins. Though his status as a free man and his father's literacy set James Fortin apart from other black people, he grew up in a world where slavery played a prominent economic and social role in everyday life in Philadelphia. Many middle-class families that weren't Quakers owned slaves or at the very least employed an indentured servant. Though the Fortins could boast of being freeborn, for black people in the colonies, freedom was precarious. Anyone who became destitute or broke the law could be taken into slavery by force. Fortin's freedom was not a status he held as an inalienable right but a contingent result of the laws of the land. As the colony's laws changed, Fortin's freedom could be granted or revoked. To avoid the fate of destitution, Fortin's father passed down everything he knew about sailmaking to his son. This was also unusual for a young black boy. Knowledge of the trades was a close-kept secret. Both enslaved and freeborn blacks were often excluded from learning a trade or craft. Seeing economic independence as imperative, as soon as Fortin was old enough to wield a sailmaker's needle, his father taught him how to sew canvas. But the sewing done by a sailmaker was far more physically demanding than the work of a seamstress. Sailmakers' needles were far longer and harder to handle than the needles Fortin's mother would have used to repair clothes. Fortin's hands would have been rough from work, even as a boy. When James Fortin was about seven years old, his father Thomas died. The historical records don't exactly tell us how. With limited options as a young black man, Fortin studied at the Friends of African Schools, where he honed his reading, writing, and arithmetic skills. Sadly, the African school was forced to close its doors, and since his mother could no longer afford to pay for his education, Fortin had to look for work to help support his family. The young Fortin took any odd jobs he could, eventually working as a clerk for a local storekeeper. While often running around the streets of Philadelphia searching for work, Fortin would pick up any newspapers or pamphlets he could find, an early hint of his voracious reading and love of the written word. The American Revolution was the backdrop of Fortin's childhood. He was seven years old when the Boston Tea Party took place, and the First Continental Congress took place right next to his family home in September of 1774. That the young Fortin read anything he could get his hands on is very obvious. His prose style as an adult, his love of the written word, and his experiments in honing language to move his audience all testify to that. He took his words from two main sources, the King James Bible and the great political theorist of the Revolution. At the very young age of nine, Fortin would hear the Declaration of Independence read aloud for the first time. Though the ideals of the American Revolution must have appealed to the young Fortin, the economic realities did not. 
By 1777, the prices of everyday goods were rising rapidly, and as the British marched closer, essential items became scarcer and scarcer. The British offered freedom to enslave blacks if they fought against the rebellious Americans. But Fortin, then 14, decided to side with the colonists instead. Though the Pennsylvania Navy had black men serving, Fortin opted instead to serve as a privateer for the opportunity of prize money, the spoils distributed to a crew from a captured ship. To support his families during these harsh times, life as a privateer made more sense than life as a Navy man. Despite the racial prejudice of the time, Fortin was very unlikely to be rejected by any captain, thanks to his invaluable knowledge of sailmaking. In 1781, Fortin began to serve under Stephen Decur, the captain of the Royal Lewis, a 450-ton, 22-gun ship. The Royal Lewis was charged with capturing British ships, or in the language of the day, taking them as prizes. A few months before his 15th birthday, Fortin left the city of Philadelphia for his first time aboard the Royal Lewis. The first mission of the Royal Lewis was a resounding success, capturing four vessels as prizes. Returning to his home unscathed and with money in his pocket, Fortin immediately signed up for another voyage. But sadly, Fortin's lucky streak didn't exactly last. A few days out of port, the Royal Lewis was attacked, and its crew was taken prisoner by a ship named the Amphion. Fortin had many reasons to be fearful. It was very common for black prisoners to be sold into a life of slavery in the West Indies. But luckily for Fortin, the captain of the Amphion, John Baisley, had two sons aboard. Baisley worried his younger son, without supervision, might get into some sort of accident, so he needed someone to look after him. A warship was a dangerous place with many ways for an energetic young boy to injure himself while playing. Baisley needed someone to mind his son and keep him out of trouble. And after playing a game of marbles with Baisley's son, Fortin impressed the young boy enough to his father take an interest in Fortin and grant him great fruiter aboard the ship while he minded him. En route to the Jersey, an infamous British prison ship moored at Wallabout Bay, New York, Baisley made Fortin an offer to come back to England with him and his son. He'd be under the protection of a wealthy English patron and have the opportunity to become a wealthy and educated man himself. This was very much a once-in-a-lifetime offer. Abandon the revolution for your personal gain. Now, this offer would tempt most of us if we were in a similar situation. But the young Fortin rejected Baisley's offer and replied, I have been taken prisoner for the liberties of my country and never prove a traitor to her interest. The message was clear. Even defeated, Fortin remained loyal to America's cause. When he had nothing to lose and everything to gain, a 15-year-old Fortin remained faithful to his home, an imperfect home, full of the injustice of slavery, but nonetheless his home, one that he would not sell lightly. Fortin was transferred to the Jersey and assigned prisoner number 4,102. Though Baisley had done his best to put in a good word for Fortin, his prospects aboard a prison ship were extremely grim. The close quarters of the prison ship created the ideal environment for contagious disease to run rampant amongst the population. Fortin could be released thanks to Baisley's good word, but only if he stayed alive long enough for his name to come up on the list of prisoner exchanges. Fortin had three options, survive, escape, or die. Again, I stress, this is a 15-year-old who rejected a comfortable life in England to be aboard a prison ship. Whether it was youthful enthusiasm or a sober commitment to the revolution, Fortin was a principled and strong man. Escape would be an extremely difficult option. If Fortin somehow managed to get off the ship, he faced a two-mile-long swim to Long Island, which was firmly under British control. So instead, he tried subterfuge. Fortin asked an American officer being exchanged if he could hide in his chest of belongings. It would have worked, but Fortin gave up his golden ticket off the jersey to a boy two years younger than him, Daniel Bruton, a white Philadelphian sick and suffering. Fortin's act of compassion made Bruton a lifelong ally and friend. But Fortin was gambling with his life. The Jersey was a hotbed for smallpox, dysentery, and yellow fever. The British wardens did little, if anything, to prevent disease, and with limited resources and limited access to doctors, any illness that was neglected could be fatal. 
But in this extreme environment, racial prejudices and local loyalties evaporated. Despite any differences the American prisoners may have had before boarding the Jersey, cooperation was essential for survival, white or black. After seven months, Fortin's name moved up the list of exchanges and he was finally released. Fortin walked barefoot from New York to Trenton, where he was given food and supplies. He then walked back home to Philadelphia, where his mother and sister nursed him back to health. During this time, the Revolutionary War had ended, ushering in a new era of American history. But this did very little to alleviate the Fortin's economic situation. James Fortin had very little time to recover from the abuse his body had suffered aboard the Jersey on his long march home. But his family was barely scraping by, and they needed more money for food on the table. To make some more money and alleviate the cost of a mouth to feed, Fortin joined a long voyage to England, where he stayed for a year. Fortin left little record of what he did in London, but it's likely that his skills gave him many opportunities for gainful employment. When Fortin had returned home to Philadelphia, his prospects had improved. With the war over, soldiers returned home and goods began to cross borders again. He pursued an apprenticeship under Robert Bridges, a close friend of his late father. Knowing Fortin since he was a boy, Bridges had seen Fortin master skill after skill and saw him as a good hire. Bridges employed many apprentices and journeymen, but Fortin was the first and only black man amongst them. As was customary for apprentices, Fortin boarded in the Bridges household and became close with Bridges and his wife, Jemima. Usually, a sailmaker would hand down his loft to his children, but Bridges wanted his own children to be merchants rather than artisans. Over the years, Fortin would graduate from his apprenticeship and rise the ranks from foreman to junior partner. Bridges had likely never been at sea, unlike Fortin, who had by now sailed multiple voyages, gaining valuable first-hand experience about how canvas sails operated under adverse conditions. Respecting Fortin's knowledge and skill, Bridges decided to make Fortin his successor. He began to teach him more than just the technical craft of sailmaking, introducing him to business partners and making him a part owner of the sail loft. In 1798, 13 years after Fortin had started his apprenticeship, Bridges retired and handed his sail loft off to him. Bridges' apprentices and journeymen consented to Fortin's leading of the sail loft. He was the first black man in America to own a business of this size and scope. Fortin had come a long way from a life of harsh poverty. He had risen up the ranks, now owning both a business and a home, a level of economic security he and his family had only dreamed of before. Fortin was primed for success. Philadelphia exported the most goods of any port in the nation. For the first eight years, business was highly lucrative, coinciding with Philadelphia exporting records amount of goods, giving Fortin a steady stream of business. Though over the years, Philadelphia's share in the shipbuilding industry declined, Fortin remained in business. As long as ships came to Philadelphia for trade, repairs and sales would be needed. But like many entrepreneurs who feel passionately about what they do, Fortin's business was not just an economic venture, but an expression of his values as a person. Both black and white men worked alongside one another without argument. Fortin's loft was home to an all-too-rare site of an integrated workforce. Newspapers often commented on Fortin's unique approach, which was further compounded by his unique circumstances as a black free man, who had become, by the 1820s, one of the wealthiest and most influential men in all of Philadelphia, all through his own efforts rising from poverty. Abolitionists and reporters visited Fortin's loft over the years, commenting on the industriousness that coexisted alongside racial harmony, all presided over by Fortin. Evidence shows that his employees were well-paid and expressed a great deal of respect for his leadership. Fortin defined himself first and foremost as a businessman. His reputation for honest business gave him an immense source of pride. He invested in real estate and owned many properties that he rented out to black and white tenants. In addition to this, Fortin even had a reputation for being a local hero, 
On multiple occasions, he had saved people from drowning on the banks of the Delaware. And for his heroism, on May 9, 1821, the president of the Humane Society of Philadelphia awarded him a certificate recognizing his deeds, which he framed and hung in his sitting room till the end of his days, being extremely proud. Established and wealthy, Fortin began to search for a wife to start a family. Fortin married twice in his life. His first wife, Martha Beat, was 17 years younger than the then 40-year-old James Fortin. The couple married in 1803, but months later she died. The cause of death is not well documented. Two years later, Fortin was wedded by his longtime friend Absalom Jones to the 20-year-old Charlotte Van Dien. The couple go on to have nine children together, with Charlotte outliving Fortin, dying only days before her 100th birthday. Importantly for us, this means that Charlotte lived long enough to see the invention of photography. A photograph in her elder years reveals that she was of Native American, African, and European extraction. James Fortin had become the most successful and wealthy black business owner in Philadelphia. He had a fortune at his disposal. But he did not live in a state of luxury and idleness. Fortin and his wife were determined to give their children the best education possible. Fortin himself had only experienced two years of solid schooling, but he valued them very dearly and became a lifelong learner and reader thanks to the little schooling he had received. The Fortins and another well-to-do black couple pooled their finances together to found a small school of their own. Eventually, the Fortins transferred their children to the Pennsylvania Abolition Society's new Clarkson School. But what these efforts show and illustrate is the Fortin's determination to secure a good position for his family and society. But as much as Fortin did, he could do little to insulate his family or friends from the realities of being black in 19th century America. In peacetime, Philadelphia was an attractive location for black people trying to find gainful employment. Though Pennsylvania was far more tolerant than other states, even free blacks were often relegated to being sailors, cooks, carters, sweeps, laborers, and servants. But despite all of this, the imperfect half-freedom that black people experienced made Philadelphia become known as a haven for free and enslaved blacks throughout the new nation. Naturally, this led the black population to increase. In 1790, black people made up roughly 4% of Philadelphia's population. By the turn of the century, this figure had jumped to 9%. Though life was by no means easy, and black people faced a huge amount of discrimination in forms of increased violence from the white community and increasingly race-oriented laws, Philadelphia was a more hopeful place than elsewhere. Migrants came there because they thought it offered more than they left behind. Fortin was a wealthy entrepreneur, a friend of the Anglican Church, a veteran of the Revolutionary War, and a renowned gentleman. He had status, wealth, and connections. Increasingly, he was becoming a leader and a spokesperson for the black community. At first in Philadelphia, but eventually in the entirety of the United States. And there's good reason for this. Fortin had the business know-how to get things done. He could run committees, write petitions, and negotiate with men of power. And he needed to be well-equipped. The widespread racial prejudice that black people faced, heightened by their increased population in Philadelphia, meant that Fortin was fighting an extremely uphill battle. But despite the daily mistreatment of the black population of America, Fortin held out hope for a day when all tyrants and the tyrants of this country must tremble. White Philadelphians grew increasingly resentful of the presence of black people. During the revolution, most of the founding fathers condemned slavery as a great evil, yet many still personally held people in slavery. While the moral evil of slavery was generally agreed upon, there was much more debate over how to remove this peculiar institution. White Americans tended to believe that freed slaves would be resentful of their former masters and want to get revenge for their years of bondage. These fears were greatly exacerbated by the Haitian Revolution, where enslaved Haitians violently resisted their former oppressors. 
As news spread of the violence in Haiti, abolitionist dream of the peaceful abolition of slavery was looking extremely unlikely. White Philadelphians demanded the local government do something to help stem the migration of blacks to Philadelphia. So on January 18, 1813, the Pennsylvania House Representatives appointed a committee to consider closing the state's border to black migrants. In response, Fortin wrote a series of letters entitled Letters from a Man of Color. While Fortin's letters were ostensibly anonymous, it was an open secret that Fortin had penned them. Fortin's prose reveals he was not merely literate, but an extremely well-read individual. Fortin, like the Founding Fathers, read the writings of Joseph Addison and Trenchard and Gordon's Cato's letters and peppered their quotations throughout his writing. Despite the shortcomings of the Constitution on the question of slavery, Fortin held the establishment of the US Constitution as a national blessing, writing, we hold this truth to be self-evident, that God created all men equal, and as the most prominent features in the Declaration of Independence, in that glorious fabric of collected wisdom, our noble Constitution. Fortin believed in the universality of the Constitution, writing that it embraces the Indian and the European, the savage and the saint, the white man and the African. Whatever measures are adopted, subversive of this inestimable privilege, are in direct violation of the letter and spirit of our Constitution. In the same vein, Fortin praises his home of Pennsylvania as a glorious place, being the only state in the Union where the African race have justly boasted of rational liberty and protection of the laws. Fortin made the case that if one man's rights were in danger, all men's rights were in danger. The continued oppression of blacks would lead to a less Republican form of government than would abolition. Fortin took pains to stress that many blacks, despite being brought to America under the worst possible circumstances, have fought and bled for the independence of America. And thus for Fortin, the motto of every lawmaker should be, the law knows no distinction. But under the current proposed laws, blacks who entered the city were expected to register their presence within 24 hours. And Fortin quickly pointed out this violated their rights and made America resemble an old European feudal power. For Fortin, the worst feature of the proposed laws was that they encouraged those who already viewed blacks as a different and lesser species. Fortin illustrated how the proposed laws on migration would be rife with abuse. If a constable did not like the look of a black man, he now had many legislative excuses to chase him down, put him in chains, and sell him into slavery without a good cause. Describing the potential for abuse, Fortin writes, My God, what a situation is this? Search the legends of tyranny and find no precedent. Thankfully, Pennsylvania's legislature did not adopt the proposed measures, but this is little to quell the demand for ever-increasing restrictions on the rights of black Philadelphians. Increasingly, Fortin argued that for black Americans, America was home. He opposed the efforts of the American Colonization Society, whose members wished to send blacks in America back to their supposed African homelands. Fortin commented, to separate the blacks from the whites is impossible to bail out the Delaware with a bucket. Fortin helped convince even the famous abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison of the follies of colonization. Black Americans were here to stay. How Fortin and Garrison met is quite unclear, but once Garrison began raising money for the radical anti-slavery newspaper known as The Liberator, Fortin was on the list of people to ask for money. And Fortin and Garrison were the same kind of person. They spoke the same language of progress mixed with biblical imagery, and they both firmly believed that slavery was in direct opposition to the U.S. Constitution. James Fortin was one of the people William Garrison wrote out to asking to raise money for his new venture. And his initial letter to Fortin hasn't survived, but Fortin's reply has. On December 31st in 1830, just as the first issue of The Liberator was about to roll off the press, Fortin wrote to let the young editor know he could help out in any way possible. In The Liberator of August 20th, 1831, Garrison published an especially forceful letter from Fortin under the caption, Men Must Be Free. It reads, When we hear, 
of almost every nation fighting for its liberty, is to be expected the African race will continue always in the greatest state that they are now? No. The time is fast approaching when the words fight for liberty or die in the attempt will be sounded in every African ear, and when he will throw off his fetters and flock to the banner with the following words inscribed upon it, liberty or death. William Lloyd Garrison was never a wealthy man. He had spent most of his life living quite frugally. Despite his best efforts, the Liberator often found itself in a state of constant financial crisis, and Fortin repeatedly came to the rescue. Whenever asked, Fortin would give any cash he could to the cause. Fortin helped Garrison in any way he could, either by donating money, lending expertise, or providing hospitality to traveling guests. Fortin's extensive connections to sailors across the globe provided a network information for the abolitionist cause. Fortin was not merely a deep pocket for the abolitionists. He had valuable knowledge and influence and knew how to maximize subscriptions for the liberator. But despite his best efforts, Fortin did not live to see the day that slavery ended. By 1842, Fortin was 75 years old, and having seen the end of his life approaching, he had drawn up a suitable will. Before his death, he was visited by family and friends, including Daniel Bruton, the once young boy he had saved, giving up his own chance at escaping on the Jersey. On March 4, 1842, Fortin left this world. He was survived by his wife, children, and the son-in-law he treated as his own. Fortin's funeral was held in St. Thomas's Church. And despite the racial tensions in Philadelphia, people of every complexion came out to show their respects for Fortin. In one last great celebration of his life's work, Fortin's funeral was a racially integrated and peaceful event, a testament to his lifelong commitment to racial integration. One of the first articles I read about Fortin called him a forgotten abolitionist. But in his day, Fortin had quite the reputation, one that defied the racist prejudice of white Americans who did not believe that blacks could be their equals. But despite being born into a racist society that disadvantaged him, Fortin rose from poverty through his own honest efforts, something we cannot boast of many of our founding fathers who held people in chattel slavery for their own wealth. As a boy, Fortin fought for the freedom of his country, and as a man, he waged another war against the evil of slavery and for the freedom of every individual. Fortin believed that the revolution he had fought and bled for was not for the sake of a new white masters, but for the revolutionary principles contained within the Declaration of Independence. All men are created equal, that everyone has the equal right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Instead of looking at how abysmal the past had been, Fortin looked forward to what America could become when ruled by principles. He became a leader first in his community, but then in the nation. Without his funds and his guidance, the Liberator, which would later inspire Frederick Douglass, might have never taken off. Today, there are many James Fortins. Roughly three million black Americans own businesses. But in his day, Fortin was a pioneer with a vision for a better world. A vision he practiced throughout all aspects of his life, most notably his racially integrated business. Fortin's life is a great story, but also has a lesson in it. It shows that the cause of abolishing slavery was deeply intertwined with the principles that gave life to the American Revolution in the first place. Fortin saw in the Declaration of Independence and the US Constitution roadmaps for what America could become, a land of the truly free. <laughs>